How do you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. I'm thrilled to welcome to Making an Impression the one, and I was going to say the one and only, but it's the one and many, John Culshaw. John Culshaw, how are you? I'm very well, Simon. How nice to see you, the one and many. Yeah. That's a great title for a show. I don't know whether anyone's had that one yet, so they probably well, have. Listen, take it, because I'm, you know, I'm now retired, so it's, if you need it, it's yours. How have you been coping with this period of weirdness, you know, since, uh, since lockdown? Yes, it's, it's very odd, isn't it? It's uh, a chance to just stop and a chance to um, just settle down, really, go into a different pace, which just allows you to just be a little bit, you know, less frantic. Yeah. And another rhythm altogether. All it is, isn't it? And I know you've been, you've been doing Dead Ringers, haven't you? Which is the so, so socially distanced version. I was, I was uh, talking to Duncan Wisby a, a few weeks ago, and he was telling me about, about how you go about putting that all together. Other things been happening? Other sort of voice work, voiceovers, and that sort of thing? Yes, a, a few of those. I've, I've done um, a few uh, recordings with Big Finish Productions, right. uh, who make all the Doctor Who audio adventures. Oh yeah, uh, I love to work with Big Finish these days. I play the part of yes, Brigadier Alastair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart. Yes, the wonderful Brigadier from the uh, uh, from the John Pertwee era of Doctor Who. <laughs> I probably ought to grow a moustache just to really uh, authenticate it. But uh, yeah, I, I've always been a great, great fan of Doctor Who. Your Tom Baker is the gold standard. Oh, Tom Baker! What I love about Tom Baker, you see, is he's so. Uh, it's even the funny little noise is like, ah. Oh. <laughs> oh. Even his little creaks, the tiniest little thing. They're funny. They're characterful. They are. They're amazing. And he's so, he's so wonderfully eccentric. He doesn't react in the way that anybody else would. Yes. He reacts yes. in his own way. And he always, um, at a big finish recording, he'll be sitting in the corner in his very special chair in the studios in Tunbridge Wells. And all of the anecdotes will just flow, you know. Yes, when I, I used to be a monk, yes, me and God were an item for a time, you know. <laughs> yes. And there was a nun. She had a pet owl, you know, this nun with a pet owl. Yes, very fond of her I was. She, uh, she had this pet owl. She raised it from an egg from beneath her bosom. <laughs> these, these are the stories that he comes out with constantly. Nobody else could get away with it, I don't think. Uh, have you heard that brilliant bit of voiceover? He was in a voiceover studio and he lost his rag with uh, the studio engineer and everybody else. I urge our listeners to go and find that. Uh, I guess many uh, advertising directors and uh, studio engineers would almost wish for something like that to happen, uh, a unique moment. I think all the gems that, that Tom would come out with between the takes, you know, they would always keep that recording going. And yes, I think... Uh, Recording just a normal, uh, some standard script, and then he'd throw it to one side there. I can make whippet shit sound like Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, that's why we love him, that wonderful eccentricity. We do indeed. Uh, I came back to stand-up comedy about 10 years ago. I'd been off it for a few years, and I used to tell this joke. In order actually to establish my credentials, I used to say, well, I used to be on Dead Ringers. Uh, Alistair McGowan, Jan Ravens, Kate Robbins, and John Culshaw... 
whatever happened to those fucking losers? It, it always got a bit of a laugh, but it made me it made me pine a little bit for the thing that I had lost because I stopped performing uh, not that long after we did Dead Ringers. In that period after Dead Ringers, you went from strength to strength. And one of the shows that I wanted to ask you about was Alter Ego. Now, that was a fascinating idea where you were sitting opposite the person you were impersonating. How did that idea come about? And, and how did you feel about doing it? I used to work on The Big Breakfast uh, in about 96 or 97. And there was a, a floor manager there called Dave, Dave Album. And he was always full of great energy, full of great ideas. And he said, I've got the idea for you. Here's what you do. You interview people, but as them. You interview them as them. Oh, now that sounds interesting. That sounds interesting. And I had a chat with a wonderful TV producer who's a great pal to this day, a fellow called Richard Hersey. Richard Hersey talks in that sort of manner you know. And he said, that's a good idea. Okay, let me have a word with Taron. Um, um, you have a word with, let, let, we'll put a call into Patrick Moore if you want. And let's see how we could, how we could go with it. So an idea started to form. And uh, eventually Chris Tarrant agreed, Patrick Moore agreed, dear Dale Winton took part as well, God rest him, wonderful Dale. And then there was this idea. The way it felt was very odd. It was a blend of being nervous, terrified, but also quite a zing because you're opposite the person you're impersonating. All the references are, are there. There's things you can copy. You want to try and create a mirror, a mirror image, as it were, and be the mischievous twin that they've never had and just see where that takes you. Different people react in different ways. Some people are a bit nervous and would never agree to to go on it but others who were slightly intrigued by it would do chris tarrant could take that yes he could just totally take that in his stride yes and we were saying different words that sound great when he pronounces them like rhyme bina dairy lee <laughs> nothing like me uh, patrick moore of course was very very eccentric as always is and i think he did quite like the idea of having a mischievous twin the way he was playing along with it was just so wonderful. He was such a performer as well as a scientist. That led to um, joining the 50th anniversary of The Sky at Night in 2007. Right. They wanted to recreate the first ever show from 1957. In those days, the shows were never recorded. So I played the young Patrick Moore against the Patrick in the present day at that time. And at first, he was quite against the idea. He says, no, 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 no. This is a very serious anniversary. It must not turn into Monty Python. I've never heard of this person before. But once we started to read the script and the sense of the back and forth came, he really got on with it and did seem to feel as though he'd had this mischievous ally. He was the mischievous ally he'd always wanted. It's, it's quite a buzz, but the sort of nervousness that you want and enjoy mixed in. So I always used to say that the person whose voice you're doing does it better than you right so there is there's no escaping that so to put yourself up one-to-one -one with somebody I mean, your impressions of tarrant and patrick moore and dale winton i remember you doing dale winton on a radio comedy that i was in i was playing various other characters it's you know it's the gold standard again it's that your dale winton was special but when you're up against the person doing it 
Are you much more conscious of the flaws? Are you much more conscious of your own voice? Are you hearing that and when you really want to be hearing their voice? Yes, you, you want to be as synchronized as you can. You want it to be a bit freaky. You know, you, you want it to be weird. You want it to be like a lava lamp doing all of this. And that's what you're aiming for. So it was always quite a challenge. You just want to try and synchronize. The characters who came on, they, they were such big characters. Tom Baker did it eventually. And uh, yes, I remember strolling up to the side of him in a pub. Yes, the actor fellow, Baker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they found it quite fascinating. But you want, you want to try and synchronize with it and copy the things that they do as they've done them. Sometimes when I'm listening to a voice, perhaps somebody on the TV, and I just suddenly start doing it, and I think, oh, I can almost not hear myself here because I'm listening so intently and copying so exactly. It doesn't happen very often, obviously, but there are those moments, aren't there? Those kind of uh, magical moments when you suddenly, you know, your voice, as you say, kind of synchronizes with that voice you're doing, and you almost can't hear any distinction between the two. That's what you're aiming for. And I think after a few years of practice, your instinct will guide you as to, yeah, 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 yeah. That's just about where it should be. Yeah. That's just about where it should be. Are there voices that you've been doing down the years that you've been absolutely selling? Your audience instantly picks up on them. As far as they're concerned, they're bang on. But from your point of view, all you can hear is you. I think in some of the early moments of alter ego, perhaps even in just rehearsals, mm. when I could hear the tone of Chris Tarrant right in front of me, yeah. or latterly with Frank Bruno. Frank Bruno has such a, a voice of great power yeah. and great depth. And hearing it, you know, mine was somewhere around here, but you know, he's had more of that, you know, that bellow from the chest, that boxer's chest. So yeah, you've got to pull it, I had to pull that down a lot, you know. So yeah. there are moments like that where you think you've got to pull it down. Just practice, isn't it? Lots of practice. It is. It's a kind of a muscle, isn't it? And I wanted to, I'll come on to something that Alistair McGowan was talking about a bit later, which was the idea of categorizing voices that, you know, we've been doing this for so long that we kind of know where a voice slots in. But I just wanted to come back to something else. It was interesting when you were telling me the story of the genesis of Walter Ego. You were doing the voices of the various people who had helped you bring the show to TV. So these are voices of people that the rest of us don't know. Yeah. Is that part of you? Is that your, you have such a fascination with voices and the sound of voices and reproducing voices that you almost, you almost can't help yourself. So when, you know, whoever you're thinking about, whoever you're talking about, you, you're going to probably have a crack at, bringing that voice into play oh i think so it's finding joyfulness in in characters mm. and nuances and foibles and those things that make people memorable reasons why people are funny that they haven't noticed and the audience haven't noticed either yeah it's a joy in all of these things and i think it's uh i think when impersonators get together that is one of the things that we have the most fun with discussing what we've noticed about different people. Yeah. Um, Kevin Connolly would always has done that in such a celebratory way. Rory Bremner as well. So forensically Alistair too. 
Alistair. I always admired the, the characters that Alistair chose to do. He always had so many original ones. That he, great at doing the people that no one else had, had thought of. And that's often the key, isn't it, John? Because finding the voice that no one else is doing or has done is because you're going to get from your audience, from your listener, that sudden, oh, almost as if we didn't even know that could be done. I was, you was talking to Duncan, actually, Duncan Wisby, who seems to do a lot of those voices you think are kind of almost nowhere that you, some, someone like me, just, I can't find the hooks in those voices and he's just doing them. David Davis, he does that brilliantly. And you think, I can't, I can barely hear the hook and he's got it. There is that sort of cachet, isn't there, when you, when you find the voice that no one's doing. Duncan is terrific at, at doing that. That really is a great knack of his. David Davis, as you say, I've done David Davis on the Newsoids show. It was sort of, you know, sort of like a, you know, like a pen full of bubbling porridge, you know, in a way. <laughs> when Duncan read the Brexit bulldog uh, speech in Dead Ringers, he sort of made it into this character. He just instinctively took him up there, took him up a gear, and made it so funny, so funny, and the audience just went for it all the time. Evan Davis is another one that he found, and most notably of all, I think that the voice that so many people struggled with for a long, long time, David Cameron. You know, really, just you know, generic portion of repeated head gesture in that sort of way, but it, it's all a bit anodyne. Yeah, Duncan found the way to give it a worm, a slither, a, just a kind of a sense of I don't know, just something that yes, that's yeah. that's the David Cameron. That's that little ingredient, that little bit of turmeric, that little bit of spice that just made it go yes. It's fascinating hearing you talking about voices because you you're applying all kinds of different imagery and kind of characterization to a voice that, that I presume that's how that helps you create a voice that you're not just hearing a voice. And I was a mimic and I, I discovered this during, during the course of making this podcast, I could hear it, I could reproduce it. And, and that was it. I didn't spend any time constructing what I was doing, but you clearly do. Do you find that you're constantly digging into your bag of little hooks, little things that are going to help you focus in on the voice you're doing. Yeah, you do. Sometimes you have to go back and have another look. It's interesting the way you describe that, the little collection of hooks and, and things that get you in and help you remember. With certain characters, they become smaller and smaller and smaller. The ones for Boris Johnson are very big. Uh, very sort of, you know, arms everywhere, you know, ruffling up the hair. And, and yes, I do, in, in that kind of... Ah. Big, big, big sort of, uh, the hooks are enormous there, you know, on the end of a, on the end of a crane, perhaps, big hooks. Okay, somebody like Ricky Gervais, okay, the little hooks and nuances, okay, <laughs> a lot more, a lot smaller, yeah, okay, little, you know, ooh. even little creaks, little casting an eye to the camera, yeah, I, I don't care, you know, all the wokists, yeah, they just want the hashtag, okay, ooh, fine, good luck to them. I should just say that I'm getting the great joy of watching John do that. Um, <laughs> and he's, the eye movements and the, the, the little gestures, it's, it's all there. So it's a complete, it's a characterization as much as anything, as I say, that you're not just doing the voice. No, it's like moving your face around. A bit like the video, yeah, okay, to Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel, but slower and more subtle. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go back uh, to Young Colshaw. And I always remember we, 
we used to chat when we weren't uh, busy doing voices. I remember you told me that you had been working, I think, hospital in hospital radio, and you've done some DJing on radio. So you were local radio, was it in Preston? Yeah, Preston, Blackpool, Hull, quite a few areas. And you, you were using the voices then, I presume, but... It's, from what I understand, that was kind of in a in a throwaway manner. It wasn't something you were thinking of. You know, this is going to be the thing I'm going to do. When did that idea start to take root? That actually you you could do this and turn it into your your principal pursuit. There was one specific moment where it, it happened, and it was uh, it was in the year 1990. And I was working at Viking FM in Hull. Yeah. Uh, and I used to do the afternoon show, one o'clock till four. Very happy days they were. I found such kindness in Hull. Beautiful place, wonderful place. And I'd done a show one day, and I think I'd peppered it with various characters of the time that you had in 1990. Yeah, probably, probably Eubank, I, I believe, I believe was part of this moment. <laughs> Um, who else was there in 1990? Uh, Teddy Christian from The Word, probably, you know. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. we've got Huff Dick and Mark Lamar on the show later, you know what I mean? And I've just been running through, just finding unusual ways to introduce Madonna records in such a form. Yeah, this is uh, They Might Be Giants and Birdhouse in Your Soul. Don't know what that's about, but here it is anyway. And at the end of the show, I walked into reception to head for home. And the receptionist, Anne-Marie, was sat there. Uh, she's a great friend to this day, her and her husband, Tim. And in her wonderful Hull accent, she said, you know, never mind talking in between Madonna records. Don't waste the fact you can do all them like voices. Don't waste it. Make that your job instead of introducing status quo. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I think that's when a little light bulb did appear just about there. And I thought, right, okay. So I spoke to a chap who used to write the adverts of Viking Radio, a fellow called Paul Sather. And he was also a, a comedy writer as well as writing scripts for petrol stations and carpet showrooms. <laughs> uh, and he came up with some lovely little gags. And I did, uh, I did my first ever gig in 1990 at the Salt End Labour Club in Hull which was, uh, it was a club for people who worked on uh, either the ships, the, the, the fishing boats, some of the oil rigs. And uh, I, I did my first gig there. And I was running through some voices, Wurzel Gummidge, Frank Bruno, Terry Christian, Julian Clary, whoever it might have been, John Major, probably. And the fellow came along halfway through my act, took the microphone off me, and I thought, oh, good grief, what have I done? I thought this was going moderately all right, but what has happened here? And he took the microphone and said, thank you, Don. Thank you, uh, let's it Don Colstrone. Let's hear it for Don. Uh, just to say, uh, the cheese and onion sandwiches will be delivered on that trestle table near the back door today, rather than at the sides to the usual door. Okay, thank you. And then um, he dropped the Huey Green accent that he only used on stage. <laughs> yeah. The microphone back and said, carry on. But he just ploughed in, interrupted the act to announce where the sandwiches was going to be. Fantastic. <laughs> These lessons into live comedy, we need them, character building. <laughs> that was the start. It was Anne-Marie in reception who said, you should try that. How interesting. So when you were a kid then, 
and again, I've asked this quite a lot on the show. Were you the, the showy offy kid doing lots of voices, everyone gathering around you do that teacher? Why don't you, you know, who can you do? And, uh, or were you quite introverted? Because I certainly was. I, I wouldn't do that for anybody but my close coterie of, of friends. Uh, so where, where, where were you in that spectrum? I was quite introverted. I, I was never loud or brash or over the top. Mm. But I, I had this little party trick in my armory to use if need be. Yeah. And uh, that seemed to make it more of a surprise, which added to it. And certainly where I grew up, in Lancashire, there were so many characters, so many wonderful characters who could have been written by Alan Bennett or Les Dawson or Jimmy McGovern, whoever it might be, uh, wonderful Lancashire characters, salt of the earth people. And I just couldn't resist but to copy them. There was a chap who worked with my dad on a mushroom farm called Tommy Shack. How are you today? I, can, I, I, I couldn't make out many words, but you sort of <laughs> knew what he meant. Just these wonderful rural dialects. Yeah. And there was my grandmother's cleaner, Mrs. Jump, who spoke in that sort of way, you know. She, she showed how the Lancashire accent curls up like that. It goes up like, yeah, look, yeah, that's right, yeah. As opposed to Yorkshire, which goes the other way, it bends down like that, you know. <laughs> so, and, and the teachers as well. Mr. Ainsworth, the school headmaster. Uh, you know, he had that lovely tone as well, uh, a great northern warmth to it. So they were just surrounded, and it's just a way of enjoying characters and celebrating them. And I couldn't resist it. Fascinating how you talk about the shape of sound. What was your first impression of a celebrity or somebody, you know, somebody famous? Oh, it, uh, Patrick Moore, it would have been. Yeah. Uh, I was off school, I think, with German measles or some fashionable condition of the 1970s and was watching the schools and colleges programs in the afternoon, farmhouse kitchen, uh, afternoon plus with Mavis Nicholson, some of these schools programs. And then there was a repeat of the sky at night. And here was this fellow speaking very, very quickly, one eye open slightly more than the other, speaking about very fascinating comets, comets and topics such as Comet Evandroland and the uh, total lunar eclipse, which has a quite beautiful all of its own. A total solar eclipse is, of course, spectacular. Here was Patrick Moore speaking in this wonderful, characterful manner. Yeah. And I just copied him instantly. And also, it, it sparked an interest in astronomy as well. So eccentric, so full of all the memorable quirks you could ever wish for. Mike Yarwood, I think, used to do him pretty well. And was Yarwood, because you're, uh, I think you're about nine or 10 years younger than me. Yarwood is somebody who was very influential in my childhood, not because I was ever had any designs on being an impressionist, just because he was, I like voices and I like people who could do them. So he was almost the only guy around doing this. 20 million people to watch his show uh, until Who Do You Do came along in the 70s and suddenly you realized there were, Lots of very good impressionists around. Was it Yarwood an influence or or somebody you looked up to? Or were you kind of very much forging your own path? No, I, I adore Mike Yarwood. Uh, he was a massive influence. And I've got such admiration for Mike. He, he was the first big-time TV impressionist. Yeah. And for him to know so instinctively how to work with all the split screens, all the multi-cameras, and to turn it into this plethora of characters doing the characters in different directions like that. You know, I'm step over here. Oh, 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 oh. And the speed and the lightning with which he did that 
also the warmth and the skill with which he did it. It was satire set to the tone of those days. And I, I think he kicked the door open for everyone else that followed. Mm. Another interesting thing to note about Mike Yarwood is that most of the other impersonators perhaps weren't doing the characters. They were doing Mike's version of them. That was a huge influence in it, a very big influence that, you know, many more would say, ooh, Betty, and, and so on because of, because of Mike. Um, so I, I think he's such a pioneer. We'll talk about Dead Ringers in a second because there are lots of things I wanted to raise about Dead Ringers. I think we did the first series together in 99 or 2000, something like that. So I think a little after that, you were doing William Hague and you famously called <laughs> Downing Street where Tony Blair was uh, in situ and you got through. Tell me a little bit about that because it's a fascinating story. Oh dear, yes, a, a little piece of mischief there. I was working with Steve Penk on, uh, on Capital Radio. Steve, had, for many years, had done his uh, comedy phone calls where he's, he's calling, pretending to be some council official or some person in authority. That They were the staple of his breakfast show for many, many years and enormously popular. Now, if ever he needed a, a character voice, he'd let me have a go. Yeah. So I'd, I'd come in sometimes with many of the 90s boxers or shaggy, possibly, characters like this to do generally benevolent but absurd calls. And there was one time when we were having a chat one day. We were talking about William Hague and what a wonderful character. He, he was so memorable and uh, we'll enjoy this fellow being around. And Steve and I were talking and just saying, what can we do with this character? Where can we call? And Steve, who always sees the most direct way through to anywhere, Steve said, well, we might as well call Downing Street. Really? You sure? Okay. How will this go? Uh, I'll probably say, yes, hello, it's uh, William Hay. Could I speak to, uh, to Tony, please? And obviously the person on the switchboard will say, oh, go away, stop wasting our time. And then we can have our moment by saying, but, but I am the leader of the opposition. Am I not important enough to be put through? This is an outrage. And we'll get a little bit of mileage from that. We jotted down all of these conversational possibilities onto a, a bit of notepaper. And Steve then obtained the number of the cabinet office from directory inquiries. These gentler, more trusted times. And he typed the number in, and there uh, with the headphones on, ready to go through these lines. Steve would always prompt when he ever thought of a line. And off it went. So, hello, Downing Street. Oh, yes, hello, it's William Hague. I wondered if I could speak to Tony, please. Uh, yes, just a moment. And... <laughs> It was all a fluke, really. It, it, intentionally, we, we, we happened to call on a Wednesday, not deliberately, but crucially, this was Prime Minister's question time day. And so it wouldn't be unusual for the leader of the opposition to call through to the Prime Minister just to run through, I don't know, what, whatever they may discuss. And so for that reason, it seemed to be not so unusual. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Blair appeared. You know, that unmistakable uh, voice and ha, 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 ha. But um, because I said, hello, Tony, thinking that's what Haig would do. Yeah. Because um, Blair publicly had always said, you know, just call me Tony. Let's keep it informal. But uh, Haig, with his very sardonic sense of humour, never went along with that and rather tauntingly always addressed him, Prime Minister, with a little bit delicious sarcasm. Yes. So when I said, hello, Tony, he, he realised something was up, but um, went along for a few moments anyway. Then happened to mention it at Prime Minister's Questions, 
Then it was announced that evening by Sir Trevor MacDonald at News at 10, and a very surreal day ensued. That was the tale of that. I remember when we did Dead Ringers. I didn't love doing it. I found that I didn't, I just didn't get any voices to do. And I, partly because I think you and Alistair were brilliant. And I think you, you had a relationship with the producer at the time that I never had. But also because I think I didn't much like the voice-off thing, you know, where we were all competing for a voice. I, and I do remember, and this is, uh, you were very sweet when we were doing a sketch and the producer had said, oh, John, you do Trevor McDonald and Simon, you do the waiter. <laughs> or you, you, do, you do the bloke down the well. And then I remember you saying, Simon does a, a very good Trevor McDonald. And Bill kind of grudgingly went, all right, and then. <laughs> so you gave me that voice and bless you for that. But it is a tough yeah. environment, isn't it? And we, I was talking to Duncan Wisby about this. I spoke to Lewis McLeod about the same thing. How do you cope with that? Because you do an absolutely brilliant Trump. You do a brilliant Boris. And Lewis is doing those voices on the show. And I know it's all in service of the show. You're trying to do the best show you can. But on a personal level, is it difficult not to, to say, I think mine's better? It's never irksome. It's it's. That's just the way that it can flow in a team show. It's just the way we pass the ball around. If I'm being John Humphreys doing the interviewing, it's great when Lewis does his Boris or vice versa. That's just one of the realities of the show. You might not do one particular character in one show, but there's plenty of other places you can, you can do it. And I think we all do the characters quite differently. I do think that's part of the responsibility. You can't just do someone else's version of a character. You've got to do your own. But yeah, you just get used to that's the way it flows. It is tricky, as you say. You know, Lewis and Duncan and I are great mates. We just understand that part of the process. And it's just give, it's just give and take. It's a blend. You've got, to, you've got to step up and read your own version and also let the traffic go in all directions. And it all, it all settles down in the service of the show yeah. as part of the realities of it. It's interesting you mentioned that about different impressions doing the same voice. And again, it's something that's come up on the show quite a lot. You can take an impressionist like, say, Danny Postill, who's got a naturally quite a high delivery. His natural voice, is, is his pitch is high. And he'll knock out uh, Boris, who we would normally regard, you know, quite a down, down here somewhere. And yet he's pulling it off. And I think you're right. It's about how you deliver that voice. Give it your own style. Give it your own take. And deliver it with confidence and belief. And you can sell it. But do you think that's a bit harder on the radio? You're, you're doing something where instant recognition is important. So the more accurate the voice, the better. Whereas in stand-up, perhaps you can get away with a bit more. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be that accurate as long as your joke's good, as long as your setup's good. I think accuracy is part of the blend. You've got to have that in there as much as you can. But it's also knowing which bits to stretch, which bits caricature so the audience recognize that bit of absurdity and that gives you the laugh too that gives you a little bit of a kick the element of surprise so uh, you know when, when lewis steps up his version of boris is, is a real tumbling ball of energy it is the uh, it is the gloucestershire uh, cheese rolling down a hill uh, in, in vocal form 
and he can he can just step up to the microphone and go ah, and a few noises and the audiences have got it straight away yeah and i think that's what it is it's part of it is the accuracy and the other is those bits which you've stretched and made you know like lengthened the shadows as the sun is setting and so on those bits that you like a caricaturist does on a page I remember your Bush impression, which was a lovely, lovely impression, vocally spot on, but you added those bits of nuttery silliness uh, <laughs> into, into the things he would say and just go off at great weird tangents. That's an example, I guess, of what you're saying now. Yes, so. I, I was so pleased when George W. came along. In the, in the early 90s, when I was sort of like, you know, trying to make my way through sort of thing, I would do George Bush Sr., uh, read my lips. You know, John Major is a superb leader. And George W. had this, uh, if you're kind of a uh, compress it a little and uh, kind of uh, give this disbelieving expression <laughs> and kind of. Uh, <laughs> so the, the mangling of the English language as well. It's, it's, oh, exactly. It, was... it is. Uh, George W. said the word Spotify. Before it was, it was a, a streaming service. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna Spotify this thing and get it out and, and identifiability. Um, <laughs> it's almost, almost like Stanley Unwin. Yes, exactly, exactly. Would you say the same is true of Trump? Because I mean, he almost exclusively talks bollocks, right? So, is that the, is that the direction you take your Trump? Look, that's a very difficult question. That's a very mean question. I don't know why you asked that. I really don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> Simon lip service, it's very bad, very sneaky. Very sneaky, it's bad. Yeah, yeah, there are. You know, there are similar, there are definitely similar things. He would mangle words in a similar way. I really do believe that he would. I think there has to be, uh, there has to be, it sort of brings on nausea the more you do it. George W., he would kind of uh, talk in a slower fashion to uh, give himself time to think about what he was saying and work out the words that were coming next. And he might get that correct, say, 52% of the time. Uh, <laughs> I think it's different with the Donald. He goes, at, he goes at a great speed of bluster. He pushes along so that none of it will stick. So he just uses the noise. He just uses the blowhard to get through, to get by the tough questioning. That was very, very mean. Fox News is not serving this anymore. That's very bad. <laughs> He's in second gear at 90 miles an hour. Uh, George Bush was plodding along, hoping he'd get away with it. But there are similarities. Yeah, well, let's let's take a look at this then, because I, as we said a little bit earlier, I I'm very much the the mimic, and I can hear it, I can reproduce it. That's it. I'm happy. I'm not thinking too hard about it. Spoke to Alistair McGowan, who's absolutely forensic about vocal reproduction. I think Rory Bremner, who I chatted to a while ago, uh, similarly, you know, he he seems to be able to delve in a bag of tricks and 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 find ways of producing i mean one one voice he told me about where he was trying to get very deep he would smoke a cigarette a lit cigarette in his mouth so he would let the smoke base his uh, his vocal cords so he could do it somewhere down here do you have a single process to get you started on a voice do you know do you look for an accent or do you look for a tone or is it a case really of hearing something and then developing, listening forensically until you feel you've started to 
acquire all the nuances? What's your what's your process? Yeah, the the, the latter, Simon. That description mm. is the way I try to do it. Just listening over and over and over again, downloading some clips and just watching over and over again. You wait and see whatever it is that you notice first, which might be a word, it might be a phrase, it might be certain aspects of the accent, it might be something completely different. I always find it varies depending on the character, but whatever you notice first, and then a bit like a language, listen and repeat, listen and repeat, and then crucially know the the moment when you've got to leave it. Just walk away and step away from it and just let your subconscious brain have a go. Just let your brain percolate when you're not actively, deliberately studying. And a lot can fall into place then. That's, but that's interesting because I've, I've said that also on the show, that with voices, sometimes you, you worry them to death. You just can't seem to get around it. You can't see what the hook is. And you leave it alone. And then three days later, oh, hang on. I can, yeah, I, I found the thing that I, was, that I couldn't find. With pitch we we talked about that a little earlier on with with danny postal fairly high spoke to luke kempner mm. whose natural voice is a little higher your voice i guess is closer to mine in pitch it's a bit bit deeper do you ever think well, that precludes me from trying other voices or are there do you have techniques for manufacturing say a voice way outside your natural pitch yeah, the, the, there are some which, you know, can cause you, you know, sort of physical pain uh, <laughs> of the Adam's apple general area. Murray Walker was always a, a tricky one. He would, so right out there, I could not sustain that book for very long. Um, yeah. So someone who's closer to that note would be better doing, doing that. <laughs> but there are certain ones... Um, Alan Carr isn't near to my voice at all. But I can push up there. You know, that sort of push. I can feel it working here. I can feel the sound coming out from there. <laughs> this sort of more constricted than it was. I would have thought McIntyre's a difficult one for you because he's very, he's uh, almost yodeling half the time, isn't he? Yes, a lot of the time. I thought of pitching around about here with the pointing and that kind of growl. <laughs> It's not fun. It's like a cheerful Dalek, yes. And what's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, also, because you you went from one uh, kind of sound to another within within the context of a single voice. Alistair used to do that a lot with, oh, you know, Doc Cotton into Steptoe. And we talk, and again, something we I raised just a little earlier was the, the categorization of a voice. Do you do that? Do you sort of think, well, that instantly falls into that little that little pocket of voices and that one in there, so that and therefore that helps you to find that voice? Yes, I think that they 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 all go in into their own little tectonic plates. Sometimes the aforementioned Michael McIntyre, I would probably put him, as I say, next to the next to the Daleks or other voices of that intensity. Danny Postel, very in- interestingly, focuses a lot more on that sort of yodely side of Michael McIntyre. He, he plays with that rather a lot more. That's rather interesting. But yes, uh, the, the certain characters. I suppose Alan Bennett would be somewhere not too far away from the likes of Alan Titchmarsh. Alan Titchmarsh, just a little, little bit more fluffy, with more mentioning of... Begonias and clematis. 
Whereas Alan might stick with cakes. Although I do rather feel guilty about that. Um, Duncan Wisby, who, who was working with Alan Bennett last year, uh, and sometimes Alan would turn up to the rehearsals. Very often Alan would say, I, I do consider myself to be quite a, a challenging and sometimes even dangerous writer. So where all of this pot of Earl Grey and some Gary Baldies has come from, I really don't know. <laughs> yes, there are those voice neighbours, as I like to, to call them, similar to that other little grouping. One of the most surprising ones that uh, I ever discovered, I think um, I was um, listening to Russell Crowe giving an interview to Michael Parkinson. And here he was at this very thoughtful level. You know, when the, uh, sometimes I will do many, many more takes than is strictly required. I will deliver a great number of takes, but then when the director sees that in the edit suite, they will see the gold mine that I've given them. And I always find that if you take this pomposity and sprinkle in a little more of a Lancashire accent, then I think it does deliver you quite beautifully to Les Dawson. I never expected Russell Crowe and Les Dawson to be the sort of voice neighbours that they were. My name is Maximus Desmus Meridius. When I was a lad, my trousers were so thin, if I sat on a coin, I could tell if it was heads or tails or not. Um, yes, that, that's one of my favourites. That's great. Uh, I, I think Rory Bremner did took Louis Walsh into Donald Trump, which was quite a feat, I thought. Look, I thought you were a great singer. You know, you're like a, you're like a, you're like a young Rick Astley. I think we could make a pop star out of you. I really do think we could be a pop. You could be a great pop star. I think you're all great singers. I just didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're currently doing, uh, as we said a little bit earlier, the uh, the socially distanced Dead Ringers. So what are your latest voices for the show? Oh, who have we had? Who have we had? I turned into Kenneth Williams for no reason. I'm really not sure. Uh, why that happened must be this light-hearted banter. Let me see. Uh, Michael Gove, he's been sort of, uh, he's inherently funny. Uh, and he's been this sort of sneaky, duplicitous character for about three or four series. Yeah, oh yeah, big time. You have my full support. Um, he's got little flashes of Rick Mail, Mr. Bean in there. <laughs> uh, Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock is... There's not an awful lot to latch on to, apart from being so efficient that he's not efficient because everything is not as it should be. And he's trying to cover it up by pretending to be efficient. Um, I love some of the lines the writers have come up with for him. You know, that the kid who won't stop staring at you on the bus or your sister's boyfriend who's got his own car or... The person who turns up at the stag night who no one can in remember inviting. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's him and there's Rishi Sunak, uh, who has a very soft delivery, but very efficient. We will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get this done. We will do whatever it takes. Yeah, there's, in the cake there, there's little shades of Blair, perhaps a little bit of Ed Miliband. Certain aspects of characters remind you of others, you know. It's this it's fascinating business, this, isn't it? And how we arrive at voices, how we develop them. We, we're coming to the end. This has been enormous fun. I know it's been like therapy for me. And by the way, you, you know, you, you, you speak about your time doing voices and the things, and you could step back to that whenever you wished. 
whenever you wished because you've got a lovely attitude into it and uh, and th- this wonderful sense of being an interviewer as well i, I think that there's two careers i'm loving i'm loving interviewing i'm loving meeting uh, all the impressionists that i i've met so far and it's been so, so so fascinating really just delving into this peculiar this esoteric art form of ours but these days i i limit myself to i'm, I'm the land i'm the voice of land rover land rover above and beyond so that oh that's very good it, yeah it keeps me busy it keeps me busy so. i'm the voice of cheese strings so. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting this because it, it just <laughs> It does remind me of a time we did a voiceover together. You may not remember this. And this this kind of highlighted our the different approaches that we took to, to voices. We were going in as they wanted someone to do Henry Blofeld and somebody to do Jonathan Agnew, I think. So I, I went away, dear, dear, lovely, beautiful thing. I, I learned to do uh, a version of Henry uh, Blowers. And we got in there and the, <laughs> the creative said to us, we, we arrived at more or less the same time, they said, oh, who's, who's doing which voice? And you went, I've learned them both. <laughs> and I thought, oh, shit, shit, pressure, straight away. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? Oh, dear, I'm so sorry. You know, you're, you were the ultimate pro. You went in there and, you know, flips and couldn't churn out the blow field. You were going to bloody well blow it out of the water. So it's great that there is an attitude to impersonations and you, you talk about me coming back to it. I, it's attractive. And I did do a little bit of stand up last year. I just I turned up at a couple of open mic nights to try some voices out and I really enjoyed it. But I did feel that there was a kind of drudgery for me in having to learn new voices because you do have to keep, you know, you've got to keep it fresh. There's no point. You know, I used to do Ronnie Corbett. You remember on, on Dead Ring, I say, like, I do Ronnie at the end. I do Ronnie, Ronnie. And but you, you, <laughs> <laughs> you can't keep doing Ronnie Corbett in 2020. So how do you keep that enthusiasm, that wonder almost that you need in order to keep coming up with new stuff yeah just noticing the characters who are funny the news has become so charged in these years of ours i I think social media adding into the mix and the sense that that has taught everybody that they have to have an opinion about everything at all times and it has to be delivered in a very assured fashion and, and all of these sorts of aspects are driving into the news and the urgency of it and the appetite of it to this saturation point, which now it's in every direction where you look. You've got to know and to turn your head away. But a, a satire is even more useful now. That's just crystallizing things, bringing a sense of normality, bursting a few bubbles, throwing a few rotten tomatoes and the joy of a bit of ridicule mixed in. Dead is the way it's written and the way... Bill oversees that. It's still, you know, a, a, a joy to be able to deliver that kind of material. I think the sense of wonder comes in taking it into other areas as, as well. There are many characters that come around now. You know, the reality stars, for instance, I have no interest in them at all. Some of the brilliant younger crop are terrific at those. You know, uh, Steph Todd, Naomi McDonald, uh, Josh Berry, Luke Kempner. Yeah, I'm interviewing Josh. Josh is coming on next week. Luke, I did I spoke to you the other week, and 
you're right. And actually, some of the voices I'm I'm kind of sitting there a bit amused and thinking, I don't know who you just did. I'm, I'm sure it was brilliant. They're leading all of this so brilliantly that you know now that the targets are reality stars, influencers, that the crop that we've just mentioned there that they are leading, getting at all that. Uh, and it's wonderful that they are that they are working with the tone that they have around them, and it's very exciting to watch. Yeah. It really is, and it's very exciting. It is. It is. There are two things I like to try and do with my guests towards the end of the show. One is to have an Alan Rickman off. Most impressionists have Alan Rickman in their arsenal, and then, then the next thing is to ask you to teach me an impression. Let, let, let's have a little crack at the, the Rickman because I think mine's quite good. I've never done him before, never. Have you not? But I should teach you. I should teach you how to to do him. Uh, well, I, I do, do Potter. Oh, that's interesting. Something like that. You know, I just stick my tongue as widely around my mouth on top of my teeth. I feel that the sound kind of comes underneath the tongue. I did this with Charlie Hopkins, and, and he, he just made me sound like some old geezer <laughs> trying out the voice because it, it was so accurate. Um, I like the way you've, ta- you've taught that, though. That, that, I wonder if I, if I start with that. If I start with that. If I start with Michael Portillo, and then let's see if I can, uh, let's see if I can get somewhere near to... Alan Rickman by starting off as Michael Portillo, bringing in a bit of Clement Fry and doing what Potter, Potter. That's already better than it started out. So thank you. Uh, Chris Eubank off? Yes, let's let's do one of the, the two Eubanks. Well, look, I'm going to start up here, you know, because this is, uh, you know, this is uh, the way that I deliver it. But, uh, Basically, all of those people who, who bet for Nigel, <laughs> I, I respect. <laughs> I respect the vote, but that was a bad bet because the, the boxer always beats the fighter. <laughs> the boxer always beats the fighter. No, listen, you know, listen, I'm just going to go out there. Listen, I've got the punching power. I've got the body movement. Totally out, Foxyman. I will beat Chris Eubank. <laughs> I love that era. It's great. Do you know, we, I had a guy on called Adam Diggle, who you, you may not know. Adam is a brilliant impressionist, and he specialises in all of those boxing voices, and he was knocking them out. Tyson Fury, Glenn McCrory. Uh, it was a real joy. Now then, teach me something, because I've been out of the game for a bit, so I don't really have much in the way of current voices. Uh, I have been taught a few along the way, and I can now do lots of new voices very badly. Ian McKellen, Fozzie Bear, <laughs> Michael Michael Portillo <laughs> was an, another one that I, yeah, I, I had a crack at. Uh, so what have, you, what have you got for me? Let's um, take me through it, you know, in, in a technical way, take me through the impression. Okay. I did enjoy the higher register of the Eubank you had there. That's sort of, that's raised up from your natural depth, your base sort of reading, as it were. What if we were to have a, a look at Professor Brian Cox? So I think with him, it's saying just a small cluster at any one time. And there is that, that Oldham accent, apart from saying the word, our home star, the sun. There could be life on the planet Pluto, but <laughs> the temperature at minus 300 degrees. Any life would be very much in the slow lane. The Earth is in the Goldilocks zone of the solar system, so we are operating in the fast lane, which is why life is so diverse. 
And this is one of the true wonders of the solar system. Look up at something bright and point. I love the fade in the sentences. He's just sort of that, that just just letting the the sound just peter out slightly at the end of a sentence. Great. So, go on, so give me a couple, give me a sentence. Let's see if I can. I need to find that pitch. It's up 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 here. Up 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 here somewhere. Up. Am I? Oh yes, that's nice. Yes, yes, that's it. That's it. Did you have a slight err sound to it? A slight err, kind of occluded throat thing going on there. I can't quite. Let's give it a try. As long as it doesn't make it sound too reedy. Let's think of a sentence here. Let's think of a sentence. Uh, the asteroid belt lies between Jupiter and Mars, and it may well have been a former planet that was subject to a cataclysmic event how about that that was subject <laughs> it's it just feels too low for me the asteroid belt <laughs> let's try let's try another phrase that's one of the true wonders of the universe that's one of the true wonders of the universe that's a step forward i'm giving myself a, a three and a half out of ten which is not my best score on the podcast so far I, I i gave myself a five for fuzzy bear so <laughs> who taught you that one uh steve nallen wonderful steve that was interesting because steve's got a, a pretty high-pitched voice but he was uh, he was doing this and i don't know what he was doing with his vocal cords but he was finding that fuzzy bear thing and um i think i almost i almost nailed it but there we are john it's been a real delight to see you again oh what a joy what a joy talk about this this crazy business i hope things are going to uh, ease up a little bit and you know we are going to find our way slowly back into going out there have you got did you have things lined up things were planned before lockdown hit i was about two-thirds of the way through a tour right and we got as far as say march the 8th somewhere around there early march and it was just we we've got a We've got to park this. Yeah. Here. So, um, so we'll we'll see. We'll we'll see. It would be it's such a joy to think of yeah. getting back out there again. Yeah. And um, yeah. I'm sure audiences will be crying out for that too. Yeah. But we've just got to sit tight for the for the meantime. And bravo you for doing things like this. You know. Yeah. It's well. Thank you. It's it's been great. And I've I've loved it. And it's it's great to catch up with some of the guys and and female impressionists that I came across down the years also to focus in on the things that I never mu thought much about and if I guess if I had my time again <laughs> I would probably spend a lot more time analyzing how I do what I do and and maybe that would have made me a better impression maybe it would have made me a bit more committed to the art I think I took it a bit for granted and you know that that can happen. No, this is turning into a, a session, isn't it? It's kind of a, you know. I'm not having none of that. You, you've always been great. <laughs> oh, bless and you. Bless you. There, there was moments when you just thought you'd try other things. Yeah. But, you know, hearing, hearing you now, you could, you could step back into that 
any way you wanted. I love your formal characters, you know, the news characters, the interviewers. I love doing those. Yeah. Because you, you bring out their absurdity. It's Bill Dare, Bill Dare, if you're listening, uh, I'm available for work uh, at the same number. I haven't moved at all, so uh, you know where to find me. John, it's been a real pleasure, a real joy. I wish you every success. Oh, you too. So you and, too. Uh, thank you once again for joining me on Making an Impression. And it only remains for me to say to our listeners, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Simon, and thank you for knitting so superbly with this technology. No polarities were reversed in the making of this program. (laughs) Thank you, John.